Let's have a look at um, this first chapter of Hosea then. So you need to get your Bible and turn to page 901. This is what Simon's going to preach to us about. Um, and I'm going to attempt to read it to you now. Okay. 901 in the church Bibles. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer son of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her lo Rahama, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned lo Rahama, Goma had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Great. So uh, Hosea chapter one, page uh, 901, for those of you in the church Bibles. I want to take you as we begin on an imaginary journey. I want to stress this is imaginary. I'm uh, upstairs in my office uh, working one afternoon when I realize I need something from home. I only live two minutes away, so it's nice and easy. Uh, so I head home and as I open the door, I realize that something is wrong. As I walk up the stairs, I realize that Ruth, my wife, is in bed with another man. I run out of the house. I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm distraught. But I turn up at your door. I knock on your door. And as you open, you see me like you've never seen me before. The tears streaming down my face. I'm distraught. I'm clearly not thinking straight. What do you say? What do you say? Maybe you try and convince me it's a one-off. That doesn't sound like her. It really doesn't, by the way. That doesn't sound like her. That, that can't be right. Maybe you say, just get out. This is clearly the start of something. You just need to get out of there. But as we talk, you realize that I still love her. I can't let her go. That all I want is reconciliation. It is, is bringing back, is, is to meet faithfulness with unfaithfulness. And so... I go back and joyfully there is reconciliation. There is a bringing back together of what was lost. There is forgiveness. There is love. 
And then it happens again. And this time it's a different man. And again, I turn up at your door. Tears are back. The not being able to think is back. What do you say? What do you say? It's happened again. And I went back the first time and it didn't work. So what do you say this time? You've got to get out. You've got to protect yourself. You've got to let go. Maybe that comes out of your mouth as you see this distraught man in front of you. But I can't. I can't. My love for the one that I made vows for can't allow me to leave. I just can't do it. I need to go back. I need to confront this unfaithfulness and meet it with faithfulness. I need to take this adultery and confront it with love. I just can't let go. I just can't leave the one that I love. What do you think? Do you pity me? Do you think you just need to get out? You just need to think straight and realize this doesn't make sense? Do you just think, Simon, you need to see sense and go? Or do you think that I'm following the path of my Lord? Do you think that I'm displaying to you the glory of the God of heaven? That there is a God who meets adultery with love, a God who meets unfaithfulness with faithfulness, a God who just can't let go of his people. Since we begin this new year, we're going to spend three months in this book of Hosea, where the heart of God himself will be on display. For those of you who were part of our evening services before Christmas, you'll know that we're going through the book of Hosea, of Amos, where we saw Amos roaring because the broken law of God. What we're going to see now over these next few months is Hosea weeping over the broken heart of God. In a sense, they're saying the same thing. They're confronting the same issues. And yet in Hosea, it is the heart of God, the one who is gentle and lowly, the one who is meek, on display is his heart as we see what adultery and sin does to, to him. So if you've got any impression from our Amos series that God is this uh, stern head teacher or this distant judge, then Hosea will realign that thought. It will realign our view of the God who brings this judgment. As his people sin, choosing other gods, leaving him behind, sacrificing the blessings that God has given to other gods. He is the broken-hearted husband, weeping over his wife's unfaithfulness. He is the broken-hearted father, distraught at his child's wayward behavior. See, Hosea is an emotional book. The, the ideas and the thoughts seem to flick from here to there. It almost seems like there is an anguished man standing in front of you who can't think straight. Who at one point, as the video said, he's talking about judgment and leaving. At another point, he's talking about love. At another point, he's talking about restoration and hope. There are times when you think there seems to be about five different things going on here. Because the emotion is front and center. And through it all, I pray that we will have a deeper understanding of the all-encompassing love of our gods. 
that we will see what it means that he loves us. It is one of the simplest truths that a child can understand. God loves me. And we're going to plunge the depths of that profound statement over these months. But we need to understand the nature of our sin and what it does to that great and glorious God. That when we sin against him, this is no minor incident. This is no tiny thing that can be swept under the carpet. It is an act of unfaithfulness, of prostitution where we who sin are behaving like prostitutes to our husbands, where we take our vows to Christ and we throw them in the bin. We mock him. We mock his work. We laugh in his face. That is what happens when we sin. But also we will see that we will worship a God of overpowering love. A God who keeps his promises and a God who is able to blast into every and any situation and say, my love is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. My mercy is sufficient to keep my people in my heart. I pray that we will see that. We will see the depths of our sin. I want us over these months to despise what goes on in our hearts. But I want that to happen because it will raise our eyes to see the God of love and to love him more, to cherish him more, to delight in him more. The God of love who blots out our sin for the sake of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so over these months, I want us to see the freedom of knowing that we are loved like that. As Neil was talking about this morning, the God who first loved us, the savior who gave himself for us is a liberating thought that he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. He saved you when you were a sinner and he will continue to love you though you remain a sinner. That we're loved with a love so powerful that it overpowers evil, overpowers idolatry and unfaithfulness and will win in the end. That we don't need to perform to earn God's love. We don't need to have this checklist that we can tick, and even when we get to the end of our own checklist and realize we haven't ticked it all, we don't need to do that because God loves us because he loves us. God's love is a free gift, and he loves us because of Christ. And as these truths burrow deep into our heart, as we understand more of how and why and the scope of God's love for us, we need to think, how do I respond to this overpowering love? What do I do now that I know, now that I experience, now that I feel this great love? How do I respond? How does my life reflect the fact that I am loved by God, that I am held by his love? This God who makes covenants with his people, who promises to be faithful. What does my life look like because of that? And how do I view my sin when compared with the captivating beauty of who Christ is? When I compare the dirt and the fleeting beauty of my life, my sin? How does it compare with the glorious beauty of the Lord Jesus? So this book of Hosea begins with a verse that helps us place it in its historical setting. Hosea chapter one and verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of 
Israel. And we can compare this opening verse with the opening verse of Amos, the book that we studied uh, last term. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Jehoash and Joash, uh, it's the same name, just written in two different ways. But you'll see uh, Uzziah, uh, the king of Judah, you'll see he gets mentioned in Hosea. And so you'll see that Amos and Hosea overlap but that Hosea carries on and continues further on in history. There are lots more kings that come after Uzziah in um, Hosea. So it starts around about the same time as Amos and then extends into the future towards that time when uh, Israel will go into exile under the Assyrians. The situation remains the same that we saw in um, Amos, that Israel is divided kingdom in, into two sections. In the north, based around the capital Samaria, is the northern kingdom called Israel. And in the south, uh, the two tribes known as Judah, centered around the capital of Jerusalem, are there. And there is animosity. There is hatred between them. You'll remember from that um, little drama that Neil and I didn't win an Oscar for, unfortunately, um, that there was that whole idea that um, Israel expected Judah to be judged. They just didn't expect themselves to be judged. They didn't like each other. They thought that each one was under the blessing of God, but the other one wasn't. There was animosity between the two. Israel is on the brink of exile. The Assyrians are uh, in, the, in the horizon. They're trying to make deals with them, trying to make pacts with them. But eventually, in 722, they will come and they will take them away and ransack the land, destroy their kingdom and take them into exile. And the kingdom is never to return and Hosea stands as a northern kingdom native, declaring the word of God to his people, his own people, that God sees the unfaithfulness of the nation. He tells them what their sin is doing, and he calls them to repent, but tells them, warns them of the upcoming judgment. But that in the midst of that judgment, he will act with unfailing love, with overpowering love to those that he has promised himself to. But this isn't just a message that Hosea will declare. We got a picture, didn't we, in Amos of the effect that Amos's message had on the prophets about how he was confronted, about how he was ridiculed and mocked, how probably, although it's not explicit in scripture, he was killed for his message. Hosea isn't just to declare this. He is to live the message too. And as we get into this overview of Hosea's family that we get in chapter one, we will get an all too powerful image, an uncomfortable image of what our sinful unfaithfulness does to the Lord, to the God of love. And so we're going to meet the dominant characters of Hosea's life tonight. First, we're going to meet the wife of adulterous unfaithfulness. Then we're going to meet the children of devastating reversal. And then we're going to meet the God of overpowering love. So let's see first, the wife of adulterous unfaithfulness. You see, the opening verses of chapter one are pretty difficult, pretty hard to take on first read. Verse two, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Goma, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. What a thing for God to say. What a thing for him to ask. In fact, what a thing of him to demand. What do you think of a God who calls on someone to do that? 
verse 2 tells us that the Lord began to speak through Hosea. But this wasn't just going to be with his words. The land, the nation weren't just going to listen to Hosea's words. They were going to see his life as a visual aid, as a picture of what his message was to say. He was to be a graphic display of what the relationship was like between the Lord and his people. Hosea was going to prophesy from a position of insight. He would have a picture of a, just a little understanding of how God felt. He was going to stand before the people and say, you know how I feel. You know what my life is like. Let me tell you what God feels like. Let me tell you what it's like for God to look upon you, his people. The people would be in no doubt that this was just not some cold message that Hosea was bringing. This was his life. Jeremiah is rightly called the weeping prophet. He would have a companion here in Hosea. There would be power, extra power in Hosea's words as his life was on display before the people. And whatever his thoughts, he submitted to the Lord's will. In verse two, it says, go marry a promiscuous woman. Verse three, so he married Gomer. It was obedience. It was ultimately, this is what the Lord has said. And so I'm going to do it. I will follow the Lord's commands. And what a command. You see, our translation here is pretty strong, but not as much as the original. Go take a wife of prostitution and children of prostitution because the land has committed great prostitution by leaving the Lord. That was the Lord's command to Hosea. Hosea is to deliberately find someone who will break his heart. He will go into this marriage knowing that he will cry himself to sleep, that he will be broken, that he will turn up at the door of his friends bereft and say, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He found Goma. He loved her. He married her. He gave himself to her. Imagine his heart as he looks into her eyes on their wedding day, as he looks into the eyes of the one he loves, and he promises to her. He promises to love her, to keep her, to honor her. I don't know if the wedding vows were the same. He promises that in sickness and in health, he will love her. And he promises to forsake all others. And he means it with all of his heart. He means it. And he means it knowing that his wife, even at the wedding, is probably casting her eye around the room. Who else is there? What other fellas are there who've been invited to the wedding? Who maybe I can see them a bit later on. How does he cope? How does he do it? Why do that? Why put yourself through it? Why would God ask that of him? Second half of verse two. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Many of us are familiar with the beautiful wedding picture at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The entire culmination of history, the high point at the end of time is a wedding as God's people, the beautiful bride, are joined eternally with the perfect bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But the theme of the Lord taking his people as a bride is a theme that runs through the whole Bible. And no more clearly is this seen than the intensely graphic words of Ezekiel 16. And I'm going to do something a little bit different now, something that we don't normally do. I'm going to read an extended passage of scripture. I'm not going to put it on the screen. You can follow it if you want, but I'm not going to tell you the page and you might be able to find Ezekiel. I want to read this because I want you to feel the power of these words. I want you to feel what the Lord is saying to Israel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, the cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or compassion, compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later, I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewellery. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace round your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. Verse 32, you adulterous wife. You prefer strangers to your own husband. See, Israel is Goma. The people of God, the people of the land are Goma, the wife of adulterous unfaithfulness. The Lord's people who take everything good from him, who take the blessings of knowing the God of heaven, all of these things from their loving husband. And then in the words of Ezekiel 16 and 25, at every street corner, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. 
Would you dare say that if it wasn't in the Bible? But that's the language the Lord uses about his people spreading their legs to whoever will pass by in their sin and their idolatry. And the theme of faithfulness in the face of unfaithfulness is seen right from the start of the nation. In Genesis 12, there is one of the fundamental promises in all of scripture as God stands before Abraham and says in marriage language, I will, I will, I will, I will. There's lots of I wills. I will do all of these things and I will, I will, I will. In the very same chapter, in the very same chapter, just a few moments later after God had committed to do everything for Abraham, we read these words. Now there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I'll be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. The very same chapter, the moment after God had said, I will be everything you need. What does Abraham do? He says, I don't trust you. I'm going to be unfaithful and trust in myself, trust in my own powers of ingenuity to come up with this way of protecting myself right from the beginning there was God's faithfulness and there was human unfaithfulness the Lord has made these huge promises to be everything that Abraham needs and just a few sentences later he ignores it all Hosea go and marry a prostitute says the Lord why because I want the world to see that my wife is a prostitute too. Strong language. It is such strong language. But we need to see that our sin is an act of prostitution. Our sin is not some little thing that we can ignore, that we can do away with, that we can say, well, nobody's perfect. Our sin, your sin, is an act of of prostitution because it shows at the fundamental level that we don't love as we should we don't love as we should there is no true acknowledgement of the covenant partner we're just ignoring and laughing in the face of that partner there's no desire for exclusivity you saw the picture on the video god's great and so's bell it's great brilliant we'll have it all no understanding it's a relationship that says i can pick and mix I can do as I please. It's the language of deceit. As we say one thing and do another, hiding our true intentions behind a veil of respectability. So the question is, who or what are you two-timing God with? Who or what are you two-timing God with? What causes your heart to beat faster in a way that Christ used to? What is it that gets your heart racing, the relationship that you know is wrong, but just feels so good. The online habit that you're really glad that nobody else knows about. The pot of money that your security is in, that you trust day by day. The substances that you turn to for companionship, the family members that you worship before the Lord. Who or what are you two-timing God with? Because he sees. And he knows. 
He knows the adultery. He knows the prostitution. He knows it all. And as this first chapter continues, we see the children of devastating reversal. See, having taken a wife, Hosea's family grows. And in the next few verses, we read of three children uh, being born, two boys and a girl. And just as Hosea's marriage was to be a visual aid, so his children were as well. There is no part of Hosea's life that is not uh, to be part of this message. They were the fruit of the unfaithful wife. And so their names are to display the fruit of Israel's unfaithfulness to their God. And so we kick off in verse three. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblain, and she conceived and bore him a son. So Isaiah welcomes his first child into the world. It's a beautiful moment, but the Lord lays claim to him as well. Verse four, then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. As usual in Hebrew culture, uh, names meant more than just the sound they made. And this boy's name, Jezreel, is to take Israel back in time. Back in 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10, King Jehu of Israel is used by the Lord to fulfill a prophecy made, to, made by Elijah to wipe out the house of Ahab, an evil king of Israel uh, from a few decades before. We see the climax in chapter 10 and verses 10 and 11. Know then that not a word the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. The Lord has done what he announced through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained of the house of Ahab, as well as his chief men, his close friends, and his priests, leaving him no survivor. The word of the Lord was fulfilled. And so the Lord commends Jehu for this at the end of the chapter. The Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Now, Jezreel means God sows or God plants. But following on from this incident, it became a byword for bloodshed. Whenever someone said Jezreel, they thought of this moment when this house of Ahab was completely wiped out. It was a massacre. Brilliant name for a baby. But to get to the heart of what's going on, we actually need a slightly better translation of that section. See, Jehu was a bad king. He was criticized by the Lord for lots of things, but actually not for what happened in Jezreel. He was um, commended for that. That was one of the few good things that he did because he followed what the Lord had said. And so the house of Jehu isn't being punished for that. Instead, the verse should say this, call him Jezreel because I will soon visit the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of Israel. Years before, the people of Israel, led by their king, had fulfilled the Lord's command by wiping out the house of Ahab. But now, because of the people's sin, led by their king in not obeying the Lord's commands, he would wipe out the house of Israel. What a devastating reversal that is. But it was only the start. Verse six and seven. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her low Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should show, uh, should all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them, not by bow, sword or battle or by horses and horsemen. But I, the Lord, their God, will save them. Child number two arrives, baby girl this time. And once again, 
her name will tell a story. Lo ruhama, which means not loved, not shown compassion or mercy. Why? Because the Lord will no longer show love, mercy, and compassion to Israel. If you know anything of your Old Testament, these words should resonate. I will no longer show love to Israel. That is a extreme statement in the course of the Old Testament. Do you feel the strength and the depth of those words? And once again, we see the fruit of unfaithfulness leading to reversal. Look at these words from Deuteronomy chapter seven. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What is the banner that is over the nation of Israel? The Lord loves them. The Lord will no longer show love to Israel. Even little Judah in the south was going to know God's love, but Israel was going to know it no longer. And pretty soon afterwards, along comes child number three, another son. Verse eight, after she'd weaned lo Ruhama, Goma had another son. Then the Lord said, call him lo Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your gods. The message wasn't clear enough already. The naming of lo Ami was the 60 foot neon sign that confirmed that Israel had gone too far. If you'd asked an Israelite to sum up what the covenant relationship was all about between them and the Lord, they probably would have taken you back to Exodus chapter six and these words. I will be your God and you will be my people. What is the covenant relationship all about with all of the law and all of the history? What is it about? I will be your God and you will be my people. It's the very basis of their relationship. And yet here it's reversed. You will no longer be my people. The heart of the covenant shattered by Israel's unfaithfulness, by Israel's prostitution. Destruction. No mercy, compassion and love. A declaration that those who claim to be God's people no longer are. A devastating reversal of centuries of relationship summed up in the names of Hosea's children. Brothers and sisters, it is vital that we take sin seriously. A cavalier attitude in the way that we fall short of the glory of God is a dangerous place to be because it begins to reverse that connection that which with which we hold so secure. See, where is your hope that you will escape the bloodshed of God's judgment? It's in the finished work of Christ as he took it for you upon the cross. Where is the certainty that you have of the Lord's love and his mercy and his compassion? It's in the truth that you are in Christ and that you are loved because he is loved. Where is your assurance that you belong to God? in that beautiful picture that Christ has paid the ransom and that you now belong to God, that he owns you and that you are precious to him. But as you make eyes at the attractions of the world, as you engage in one night stands with sinful behaviors, as you develop full-blown affairs with your favorite sins, the assurance wavers. Not from God's side. That side, it is as solid as a rock. No word of the Lord will ever fail. But you should begin to wonder 
how deep your love for him really is, how much you are laying hold of those amazing promises, how deeply you have connected with all that Christ is, how certain you are that you came to him in the first place. See, those glorious truths that we build our certainty on will never be reversed. But our understanding of how we relate to them may be. Our sin tells us something, tells us what we love. And we need to know who we love because there is no greater question we can ask. Hosea's children, they stand as a warning to us. Make sure you aren't undermining the faith that you profess through your spiritual adultery. So we've met the wife. We've met the kids, the wife and children of harlotry. They've been center stage with the Lord kind of directing from the wings, using all the darkness of Gomer's unfaithfulness to reveal the darkness of Israel's heart. But into this gloomy, this desperate scene, suddenly the lights come on in glorious power as the Lord shines his faithful love into the darkness of Israel's unfaithfulness. The children's names revealed the way that Israel's sin had reversed all of the blessings of the covenant, reversed the relationship with the Lord. But then he overpowers it all with his love. And it all starts with a beautiful word in verse 10. Yet. Yet. With everything that has gone before, with all the unfaithfulness of his adulterous wife, with all the evidence pointing towards the Lord, rejecting his people completely, yet, yet. Take in these words. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader. And will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. See, the Lord goes back to his covenant promise with Abraham, his marriage vows of I will, I will, I will. The great nation that he promised, the numerous descendants, the blessing to the world, all of this will be seen. All of it. He takes the stinging rebuke of verse 9. You are not my people and I am not your God. And he declares that he can't let his people go. I can't let you go. His promises are too strong. His love is too intense. He will win. But it goes further. They won't just be his people. They will be his children. You see that in verse 10. In the place where it was said, you are not my people, they will be called children. Children of the living God's. He will overpower the unfaithfulness of Israel and he will make it even better than it was before. And where there will be reconciliation with the Lord, there'll be reconciliation and unity amongst the people as well. Did you see that? Uh, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. What a statement to make at this point. It doesn't jump off the page to us like it should. But these guys were sworn enemies. They hated each other. They fought each other. And they certainly didn't see a time when one leader would unify them. They thought their king was better than the other king, and the other king was better than their king. But here, one king will unify them. But it will happen because of the Lord's love. And even the reputation of Jezreel, 
will be overpowered by God's love, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Remember what Jezreel means? It means God sows. Where he once sowed judgment and punishment, now he will sow unity and love as his people are restored. Save your brothers, my people, and save your sisters, my loved one. And who is this great leader? Just flick over to chapter three and verse five. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Who's this leader? It's God's king in David's line, the promised one who will sit on David's throne forever. A king who will rule in love, uniting enemies and overpowering sin, unfaithfulness and rebellion, healing the broken hearts of God's people. Because there was another day of bloodshed, a day when judgment fell, a great day of Jezreel. See, on a hill outside Jerusalem, God's king in the line of David was judged. His blood was shed and he was killed as a sin offering to God. He was treated as an adulterer. He was treated as an unfaithful prostitute. The perfect son of God treated as a whore. Because great was the day of Jezreel. The Lord planted his righteous judgment deep into the heart of his son so that he could plant his righteous holiness deep into the heart of his people. And what's the result? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You look at those words. There is no surprise that God loves his church. Of course he does. It's a radiant church. There's no stain. There's no wrinkle. This is a beautiful bride. This is the bride of Revelation chapter 21. Of course God loves because this bride is easy to love. And why is the bride easy to love? Because the bridegroom took on himself all that caused separation, all that was dirty all that was unfaithful, all that separated. He took it for himself. What grace, what overpowering love to take those who deserve hell and give them himself, to present her to himself, to look upon the dark, the dirty, the rotten, and say, you are my people. You are my loved one. Do you see how much you are loved? Do you see the lengths that God has gone to, to reach into your heart and to take that unfaithful adultery and rip it out, to place it in his son, and then to take his son's gentle and lowly and precious and perfect and holy and righteous and beautiful and faithful heart and place that 
in you. As we catch a glimpse over the next few weeks of Hosea's love for Goma, genuine love for Goma, I pray we'll be blown away by the love that we see the Lord has for us in Christ. It's a liberating love because it's one that can't let go. We can go to him with our sin. We can kneel before him and say, I can't do it. I know that I'm living a life of prostitution and I don't have the strength. Please overpower me with your love. Overpower me with your spirits. We can go with our hurt. We can go with our longing, our frustration, our highs and our lows, because we can be sure that he will remain faithful. There is nothing we can say to him that will cause him to walk out the door. He is faithful. Whatever sin you've committed, whatever act of prostitution you are currently stuck in, there is always a way back. There is always a way back. Submit to his overpowering love in Christ and see the stunning beauty, the glorious face of Jesus that will hold us forever. The love that cannot let go. The love that we cannot be separated from. The love that purifies us, that cleanses us, that turns us, you and me, into a radiant church. What love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we we bow in your presence and we just say thank you. We look at your love and... We, we just can't take it in. We see the gap. We can't take in the gap there is between you and us. And we praise you that the Lord Jesus has bridged that gap. We thank you for his faithfulness, for his purity. That at every moment, he had eyes only for you. Forgive us, Lord, that that is not us. But we praise you that in Christ, you are removing every spot, every blemish, every wrinkle. And that one day we will be that beautiful bride. Thank you that you love us because of Christ. And I pray that as we understand that love, we will root out the sin in our hearts. As Neil pointed us to this morning, that we would daily take up our cross nail to that tree everything in our hearts that takes your place and that we would live liberated lives in the glory of your love lord thank you that you hold on to us and we pray that our lives would demonstrate that love in your precious name and for your eternal glory amen